Well, hey, Hubs, it's good to be with you today. And I am, just a fun fact about Sean, a bit of a helicopter parent. Now, if you're not familiar with the term, what it means is that a helicopter parent is one who hovers around and over their children when they're doing things that make them nervous. Playing on playgrounds, riding bikes, swimming in a pool. And I am that kind of parent. Driven by nerves, but really trying to be overprotective and making sure that my kids, who I love dearly, don't get hurt or fall into harm, ensuring their well-being. Right? All sounds good on paper, but really, when they get to the core of it, I'm anxious, I'm fearful, and I'm really controlling. And, and my kids would probably tell you the same. Now, a couple of summers ago, we went to the uh, carnival, the 4th of July carnival in Cedro with some friends. And my kids wanted to go on the Ferris wheel. I looked at that Ferris wheel and said, uh, no. Right? I didn't like heights. I hate heights. And really didn't think I trusted it. Chintzy equipment, don't know when it was last inspected. I really didn't like the seats either. They weren't enclosed. They didn't have railings over the top of the bucket or enclosures or cages or anything. And so I was like, nah. My kids were like, I want to go, Dad. And so a friend of ours that had gone to the carnival with us, he was taking his kids. And so our kids joined them in the same bucket. And they go up and I'm watching them. And I'm the helicopter parent, right? So I'm standing there just... All right, kind of like looking like Pete Carroll on the sideline during an intense game, just hands on the knees, just, okay, there they go. And they go up with the Ferris wheel. And my kids are sitting in this bucket and it is literally just a bench with no railing. And they are, put their knees on the bucket and they are leaning over the edge. Hey, daddy, hey, daddy, hey, how's it going? And I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, uh-oh, 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 right? And, and as they maneuver themselves up towards the top, they're leaning over, just waving and so excited. And here's where the helicopter parent kicked in. I'm standing there 200 feet down and I just, Erin, sit down, Kelly, sit down, Margaret, sit down! You sit down right now, duck to the door, don't put your butt in the bench! Right? That is helicopter parenting at its finest. Then I seriously had this moment where I contemplated, if I stand close enough, and God forbid one of them was to slip out, I could Spider-Man this moment and catch them and save them. Like, I'm not thinking rationally, I'm not thinking uh, in, in reality. I'm just thinking beyond that and thinking about what I can do to solve the problem. And that's the, that when looking at my helicopter parenting, and I'm guilty as charged, it reveals this massive inability for me to trust. I don't trust the carnival, I don't trust the ride, I don't trust my kids. I didn't, in that moment, to be honest, I didn't trust my friend who was there, and he's a grown-up. And so in moments like that, all I can really trust is myself. And I trust what I think that I can control, whether or not I really have any control. In that moment, I didn't. I try to think about how I can control the situation. We're going to look at the life of David and see a moment where he struggled with trust. That he was trying to trust God, and he was a man who was after, chasing after God's own heart, but he struggled with truly trusting God. And we're going to see this moment of struggle, and it reveals that he was more David-reliant than God-reliant. And you find this story towards the end of David's life, uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 24, what we're calling the sinful census. Say that five times. Sinful census, sinful census, sinful census, sinful census. And try to say it without actually saying something inappropriate. There we go. 2 Samuel 24, verse 1, the sinful census. It says, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. And so the king said to Joab, and the army commanders with him, go. Throughout the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. 
But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my lord see my lord the king see it. But why, my lord the king, would you want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders, and so they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. So we begin to see David is taking this census, this inventory of his soldiers. Joab's pushing back. Why do you need to do this? God could do so much more than anything we could ever count. And so he sends out Joab and his commanders. And nine and a half months later, Joab returns. You've got 800,000 troops over here. You've got 500,000 troops over here. You've got well over a million total, David. Here's your, here's your kingdom. Here's your troops. Here's your army. And in verse 10, we see David's response as he finds this out. It says, David was conscious stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, O Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a foolish thing. You see, David is confronted with the fact that he didn't trust God. And so he's having this inventory, and when that actually hits him, he's wrong. And he realizes he's wrong. And with being wrong, with sinning, there are often consequences. We've talked about that this summer with David's story. And David is confronted with this interesting moment where he's given three choices. Door number one, two, or three. And door number one is three years of famine. All of Israel, David, three years of famine. Do you choose that? Door number two. Do you want three months of running from your enemies? Door number three. Do you want three days of plague? Like, not really the game show contestant moment you want. Three years of famine, three months of running away from your enemies, or three days of plague. That's what David's confronted with, and so David has to make a choice. And he, he makes this choice, and it says in verse 14, David said to Gad, who was the uh, prophet at the time, David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into the hands of men. And so the Lord sent a plague on Israel from the morning until the end of the time designated. And 70,000 people, 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. David picks the plague, trusting that maybe God would relent. And, and he's horrified by what he's seeing. 70,000 people from his kingdom are, are dying from this. And he takes full responsibility for it. He goes and he buys some land, he builds an altar, he worships God, makes a sacrifice. God, I was in the wrong. Please forgive me. And, and he pleads for mercy. And you know what? God shows compassion. He relents. He stops the judgment. And that's how the story ends. It's a fascinating story. It's an interesting story. There's a lot of different angles we can look at it. Today I want to focus on this sinful census. The simple idea of counting his men ordinarily would not be wrong. In the book of Numbers, I mean, goodness, there's a whole book called Numbers where God tells Moses, count the people. So counting is not evil. Jesus, when he feeds the multitudes with fish and bread, somebody counted to know that there was 5,000 at this occurrence, right? Somebody knew that, and they tabulated how many people there were. And Jesus never condemned them, like, stop counting, that's unrighteous, don't do that. He counts them, and he records it in the Gospels. So why is counting wrong for David? Because attendance isn't a bad thing. Counting and metrics and all of this is not wrong. But for David, it is. Why? I think it's wrong because it shows David's true heart. In, first, in verse 1 of this chapter, we see that, that David has made a decision. 1 Chronicles chapter 21 re-records the same thing, and, and, and its wording of it says that Satan tempted David. 
You know, so what, what we see when we look at both of those texts is we see that God allowed temptation to take place. God wasn't the one tempting, but he allowed Satan to tempt David, to give him an enticement, to give him a choice. And God gives us free will. And David chose to be tempted, or chose to be tempted. He chose to indulge in that temptation and chose to take the census. And by doing that, what it begins to reveal is that David is trusting himself more than he's trusting God because he's looking at his kingdom. He's not looking at this great inventory of soldiers and saying, wow, God, look at what we can do for you. This is awesome how you've multiplied your people. He's looking at it and sitting back in his easy chair and saying, yeah, pretty big kingdom, pretty big guy. I'm a big deal. Look at me go. Look at what I can conquer. Look at my next conquest that I could go and defeat. Man, oh man, this, this decision to, to indulge in this census is not about honoring God and being thankful and grateful for God. It is about his vanity, his ego, his pride, himself. And the census seems so an opposite character of David. Because you look at David's life and you see moments where he is a man trusting God. Even at the very beginning of his story, he's described as this scrawny little dude, right? But... At his anointing, and we talk about this in week one, but at his anointing, this axiom is spoken over David, that God does not look at the outward appearance, but he looks at the heart. That characterized David and his, his authority, his kingship, his kingdom, everything. Because that's how God looked at David. It wasn't outward appearance. It wasn't numbers and metrics and size and magnitude. It was his heart. In, in the Psalms, David records how much he trusts God relies on God, counts on God. In Psalm 20, verse 7, he says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. He trusted in God to give him victory over his enemies. He trusted God to protect him from his enemies. He trusted God to fulfill his promises that he would eventually become king someday and that his throne would last in the heritage and line of his family forever. David was a man that trusted God. And yet, he's also a man that struggled to trust God, and the census shows us that. The idea of trusting God may seem easy or simplistic. And when we are confronted with moments in our life, David shows us how easy it is to neglect trusting in God and begin to trust in things that we can count. In things that we can control, in things that we can build in ourselves. That's what David is trusting in. And so I ask that of us. What are we counting on? What are we putting our trust in? Are we counting on God? Or are we counting on ourselves? Think about all the decisions that we have to make. And, and, and right now you may be faced with big decisions, small decisions, I'm not sure. But what are we counting on? Are we counting on God in the midst of that decision? Or are we counting on ourselves? And sometimes what I've found is that what we count reveals what we're counting on. Let me explain David counts his men. And so what is he counting on? He's counting on these men to bring him security, to bring him expansion, to build his strength, to find security in all of these things. When I'm counting on, take for example, personal examples, when we count on our bank account, when we count on our savings and our retirement fund, we may actually be counting on financial security to be the bedrock of stability for us. When I'm counting my BMI and the number of push-ups and my weight and my cholesterol and all of these things, I may actually be counting on my fitness to bring me longevity and long life. And I, I want to remind us that not all the things that we count are bad. Okay, so being financially responsible, not a bad thing. Being physically fit, not a bad thing. 
Knowing the number of people under your leadership, not a bad thing. It's when we don't just count them, but we count on them. That's where we begin to reveal something wrong, something that is off. We redirect our trust off of God and onto things that we think that we can control. And the question is, is do we really even have control over those things? Do I have control over my finances or the viewership of our, of our church? Do I have control over physical fitness and the longevity of my life? Do I have control over the areas of my life? Does David really have control over his armies and the magnitude and size of it? No. We're more like me standing at the bottom of that Ferris wheel saying, Ah, I think I got it. Sit down. We're going to control the situation. We don't really have control. But we think we do. And we find ourselves trusting in ourselves more than we're trusting in God. And trusting in God seems so simplistic and easy. And yet, you know what? It's tough. The longer I follow Jesus, the, I actually find that it's harder. And that's a pattern that we see in David's life. It's not easy to follow God. It's not easy to trust God. And if it's tough for the giant slayer, it's going to be, trust, it's going to be tough for us. There's a classic verse about trusting God. Funny enough, written by David's son Solomon years later uh, in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Very famous passage. Seen in a lot of Hobby Lobby art, I'm sure. It says, Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Let me read that again. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and trust. Acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. But to trust in him with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. The reality is, is that we don't always trust with all of our heart because we're trusting in our finances or other things that we can control, other variables we can control. A lot of times we're trusting in ourselves. We trust in our gut, our experiences, our instinct. How many of you trust your gut? Emphatically and, and without hesitation, you can just trust your instinct to make a decision. We're not really trusting God then. I'm a verbal processor. I, I, I think that I'm trusting God by talking about things with people, but the more I reflected on it this week, a lot of times I'm verbally processing and I've already made the decision that I want what I'm actually doing is sharing that with people around me, whether it be my wife or our team and staff and ministry leaders, friends, whatever. I'm sharing these things and, and I'm not really looking for them to correct or to give feedback or to maybe insert some truth that may be helpful. I'm actually looking to them to just simply affirm what I've already decided. That was like an aha moment this week for me. Was that I'm really still just trusting in my gut to make decisions. And I'm counting on other people to just affirm my gut is right. They say, I'm not trusting the Lord with all my heart. I'm not leaning on his understanding. I'm leaning on my understanding. And so how do we begin to lean on his understanding? To discover his ways and his path for us. And the question I would ask is, if we want to trust God with all of our heart, we want to lean on his understanding, well, who are you listening to? It's a great question to ask. Who are you listening to? Because as we look at the life of David, we see that... He's out of touch. He's disconnected. He's not listening. And two people he's not listening to. He's not listening to God, and he's not listening to the people in his life. First, he's not listening to God. He's out of touch with God. Never once do we see him praying and reading the scriptures, writing a psalm, having a worship time, seeking Yahweh. He's not doing that. He's alone making these decisions on his own. He's trusting in himself. You contrast David with that of Jesus, who is 
at the end of his ministry, his ministry is shrinking and depleting and, and to the point where his closest allies, his disciples are betraying him, abandoning him. And he's where? He's in the garden. He's praying. He, he's contending for God's will in this and he's having honest conversations with the Father, staying connected to the Father. And you see some honest conversations. God, if this could go by, I wish it would. I wish I didn't have to drink from this cup. Could we make this different? Could we go on from here? Right? His rationale, if he was leaning on his own understanding, you really want me to go through that? Are you sure? I don't think God wants us. Nah, we're, not, we're, gonna, we're gonna skip this one. We're gonna take a day off from he even says later when he's confronted with the disciples again, he says, you know, I could have called down a legion of angels to protect me and intervene in this moment. That would be taking control of the situation himself, right? He's about to be arrested, betrayed, beat, executed, and Jesus is like, we're going to send some angels to intervene. That would be him controlling the situation, taking control, trusting in himself. But he's so connected to the Father, he's able to understand the will of the Father the ways of the Father. Lean on the understanding of the Father. And we, in order to trust God, we have to lean into His understanding and we do that by staying connected to Him. It's like being in an inner tube behind a boat. You want to be on an inner tube behind a boat? Go where the boat goes, right? Well, what do you need? You need a line. You need a rope connecting the two in order to stay connected and go where the boat goes. Otherwise, if there's no rope of connection, you're sitting in an inner tube, you're just floating along in the lake. Hey, we're having a lake day. But to go where the boat goes and have an enjoyable experience, you need that line of connection. You and I, we need that line of connection to God. We need to stay connected to Him. To go where God wants you to go, you've got to stay connected with Him. Stay in communion to Him. Stay listening to Him. And so you're making decisions right now, big, small, whatever. Have you prayed about it? Have we stopped and waited on the Lord for direction? Have we looked at Scripture? Or are we just trusting our God? Are we trusting what's rational and logical and reasonable? Are we looking at the resources we can control, like our money, and allowing that to dictate the voice of God? And foolishly replacing the voice of God with what we can control. The other thing that David is out of touch with is people. He's not listening to the people that God has put in his life. Joab comes to him and questions him, why are you doing this, David? Why? What, what's the big idea here? What's your plan? God could multiply your army. You see that in verse 3. God could multiply your army beyond anything you could imagine. Why do we need to take this census? But David makes this decision on his own, in a vacuum, isolated, autonomous. God's put people in our life to get our attention, to speak truth in the midst of our confusion, to rattle our cage a little bit. And are we listening? When people come to me and, and, and say, oh, Sean, will you will you pray with me about this decision that I'm making? And, and you know, life decisions. The privilege of the role that I'm in. People will come and they'll, you know, family stuff, financial stuff, work stuff, difficulty, whatever. And, and a lot of times, there's two things I, I, I want to know. Are you praying about these decisions you have to make? Are you seeking what God wants in this decision? And secondly, who else are you talking to? Are you just talking to yourselves? Or are you asking friends, close, spiritual friends that have been a source of encouragement and support for you? Are you reaching out to them? Are you asking your pastor, your mentors, your counselor, your parents, those of you that have a relationship with your parents, and, you know, seeking that source, those sources of wisdom? God can speak through those people. 
Don't make those decisions alone and cut off and isolated. And what's crazy is in that proverb, it begins to lay this picture out as we trust in him with all of our heart. We lean not on our understanding, on our own understanding. We acknowledge him in all of our ways. Like we allow God into those decisions. All decisions, big, small, and different, whatever it is. What does the proverb say? He will make your path straight. And that could be confusing. We could read that, and the, the, the translation may uh, give us the wrong impression. Straight doesn't just mean easy. It's not the path of least resistance. When God makes the path straight, he's making the path clear. He's marking the way. I recently went hiking with my family, and we were up by Deception Pass, and we hit this fork in the road, and there was no clear signage. It was not clear. And we were wondering, do we go to the left or do we go to the right? And we went to the right, and the path dead ends. It was just cliffs. And when you're hiking with a four-year-old, you don't go down cliffs. <laughs> so we weren't going to blaze our own trail. So we went back. And we saw some folks, and we asked them, is that the way the path goes? And they're like, no, I think it dead ends. And so my dad opened up this phone, and he opened up this app that he had been raving about the whole day. And we, we looked at it. We sought direction from it. We sought understanding and, and got our bearings. We talked about it amongst ourselves and said, yes, that is the way to go. Even if they say it's not the way to go, that's the way we're going to go. And we went and we found the path. And as we're walking down the path, we pass these people and we're just wondering, like, did they not see? How did they not see this? How did they not see this clear path? And that's the thing is we begin to trust in the understanding of God. He makes that path clear. He makes it very apparent. That's the way to go. Even if other people disagree with you, there's a dead end. There's the path that God wants for you. And what happens is as we begin to trust God, we begin to prioritize God's path over my path. And God's path begins to envelop my path. We see this in the life of John, John the Baptist in the New Testament. John was given this mission by God to blaze, away, blaze the path for Jesus. And he had this huge ministry out in the wilderness. People come and get baptized and listen to his teaching and preaching and all of this. But then Jesus gets on the scene and, and John's crown kind of goes to Jesus. He's the new hot act in town. And they go listen to Jesus. And somebody actually comes to John and they say, hey, uh, what are you going to do about this, John? Does this bother you? Is this a shock to your ego? Like, what's the deal? And you're going to revamp and get some new clever ideas and attractional programs? You're going to change your teaching style? You're going to start dressing nice? What are you going to do? Right? Write Jesus an email. Send him an angry email. Say, what's up, cuz? Because they were cousins, so it makes sense to say that. But this is John's response. And what it shows is the trust that he had in God and the way that it prioritized a different path. That God's path actually superseded John's path. This is John's reply. A man can only receive what he's been given from heaven. You yourselves can testify. I said, I am not the Christ, and I am sent, I, but am sent ahead of him. He must become greater, and I must become less. John is the antithesis of David here in this moment. David's out counting his men, building his surplus. He's out there parading his army and feeling good about himself, dreaming about conquests and victories, and it's all about his own understanding and his army, and it's all about what? David's path. John's looking at it, seeing the shrinking crowd. And what has happened is this reprioritization. He's got new perspective. And he's not worried about the shrinking crowd because the kingdom matters more than the crowd. John looks at everything as a gift. Everything that I have is a gift. I can't be angry that it's gone. I can't demand it. I can't try to control it. It's a gift. And so if God wants to give me a larger crowd, yeah, he could. 
but he may not. And I love John's grace. He must increase and I must decrease. He being Jesus. Jesus must increase and I must decrease. The kingdom of God must increase in my life and the kingdom of Sean or John or you must decrease. The path of God must increase in clarity and the path of John must decrease. The path of John would have been, oh, I want this huge ministry success. I want lots of followers. I want people to love me and I want to be cherished for generations. But the path that God had for him was, you're going to blaze a way for the Messiah and then I'm going to continue to make a way. It's going to be bumpy. And John so trusts God with all of his heart, all of his understanding. He's living out this proverb that he trusts him when the clarity of that path leads to conflict. Shrinking crowds is one thing, but then conflict with the king, imprisonment, and eventually being beheaded. John is so entrenched in his trust of God that it, that's what matters is the kingdom matters more than his kingdom. That God's path matters more than John's path. And today we're talking about trusting God. To count on God more than we count on ourselves. Big decisions, small decisions, all decisions. And I think what we see today is as we begin to learn to trust in God, it changes our perspective on things. It changes our priorities on things. And it's going to change the path that God has for you. But let's begin to trust Him in all things and with all of our heart. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray right now that you would come and be the compass on our journey. That you would be the one that we look to, we run to, we listen to. God, I pray that we begin to trust in you with all of our heart. That we would depend on you for answers and clarity and direction. We ask for forgiveness where we've trusted in ourselves more than we've trusted in you. And we ask for your help as we move forward from this day forward to continue to just trust in you. Help us to discover what that means more and help us to follow you all the days of our life, wherever that path leads us. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Church, we love you so much. and I'm praying for you and with you on this journey. And uh, we'll see you next week. For more information, find us at thehubcitychurch.com. Thanks for listening.